Okay, good evening, silhouettes and glowing beams. <laughs> so, over the course of this retreat so far, Di and I have been weaving together these different sets of teachings, combining the mindfulness practices taken from the Satipatthana Sutta with some of the heart practices of the four Brahma-Vihara. So through that process, we've been weaving back and forth to emphasize one or the other of the two wings to awakening. And so this afternoon, we touched into the Brahma-Vihara of compassion. And this evening, I'd like to pick up on the sequence of the awakening factors that Dai brought in last night with her exploration of energy and joy. So as many of you know, all of the various practices that are offered in the Satipatthana Sutta, they're all designed to support these seven factors of awakening to arise. So in many ways, the awakening factors are the culmination of Satipatthana practice because they bring the heart-mind into an optimal state for deep insights to arise. And as Di mentioned last night, once the seven awakening factors start to come into play, we can explore how they work together to balance and steady and stabilize the mind. So just as a reminder, mindfulness, the first factor, is energetically neutral, but it's always needed. And then the next three factors of investigation, energy, and joy, they all have the effect of raising the energy in the mind. And then the last three factors of tranquility, samadhi, and equanimity, they calm the energy into profound stillness and steadiness that supports transformative wisdom to arise. So this evening I'd like to continue exploring these seven factors of awakening and picking up more or less from where Dai finished last night. So we're going to look more closely at the awakening factors of tranquility and samadhi. Tranquility and samadhi. Now, it's possible that on hearing that, some of you might be thinking, hmm, I hope she's not seeing into my mind right now. Tranquility and samadhi feel to be as far away as the moon. Well, maybe that's true for some of you, that there might be some mild agitation or restlessness. But compared to how you were back in your ordinary life, say, the day before coming on this retreat, if we could somehow take a snapshot of the psyche back then, and compare it to a snapshot of the psyche now, I'm pretty confident that you would recognize quite a bit more tranquility and calm and steadiness, samadhi, than a week ago. And as Di and I have both been emphasizing, learning how to recognize these qualities is the crucial first step in helping them to develop and to grow. So as Bhikkhu Analio likes to say in relation to any of the awakening factors, they may be just tiny buds, but tiny buds have the power to grow into great trees. And actually, since it's spring here at Temuata, 
I've been appreciating the tiny buds on the blossom trees in the orchard and how beautiful they are. So even the tiniest bud, it has the power to uplift the heart and the mind. So, coming back to the awakening factors of tranquility and samadhi, I'll give a a brief overview of each of them and their relationship to each other, and then I'll come back to them in more detail. So in the sequence of all of these awakening factors, each one, the preceding one, naturally supports the next one to emerge and to strengthen. So last night, Dai highlighted the quality of joy. And we can experience this joy in varying degrees of intensity, perhaps from a more subtle quality of maybe appreciation, gratitude, lightness, contentment, through to delight, rapture, at times even bliss. And Joseph Goldstein explains that this factor of joy, or piti, it has the function of refreshing and delighting the mind and the body, like a cool breeze on a hot day. So you might get a sense from that image of the cool breeze on a hot day, how joy naturally brings with it a feeling of refreshment, of ease, of calm, and that supports tranquility to arise, steadying into serenity of body and mind. So the first stage in working with any of these awakening factors, as I said, is to recognize how do they show up for us? How do they feel? What's their signature frequency in a way? So even right now, you might just take a moment and tune in to see, is there any degree of tranquility present right now? Now, of course, this is all relative, but... I like to play with this numbered scale. So if we think of a scale where zero is no trace of calm whatsoever and ten is the deepest serenity that you've ever experienced, just for a moment and sense in within within your own frame of reference. See if you can give that serenity, tranquility a number in the range of zero to ten. Actually, because you're all sitting here, I'm pretty sure none of you will be at zero. Don't worry, I'm not going to ask you what the number was. It's just not doing this for entertainment, but because it's actually a useful skill to develop, to train in noticing in any moment the relative strength of these skillful qualities. And very importantly, to do it without self-judgment, to bring that attitude of kind curiosity to knowing what's happening in our minds. And it needs to be non-judgmental because the aversion of judgment is a hindrance and that will stop the awakening factors from growing. Now just to acknowledge that of all of the awakening factors, I think maybe tranquility is the easiest both to overlook and to underappreciate. And in mainstream culture, we're so used to being constantly entertained and being consumed by busyness and perpetual doing that when all of that activity stops, there can be a sense of, now what? Nothing's happening. 
And in my own practice, it took quite a while to appreciate what an important role tranquility actually plays, not just in refreshing the mind, but also supporting the next factor of samadhi or absorption to arise. So how does it do that? By making it much easier to recognize the presence or the absence of the hindrances. So in ordinary everyday life, it can seem like the default setting of our minds is kind of like a a swirling kaleidoscope of sense desires and aversion and sloth and torpor and restlessness and worry and skeptical doubt and plenty of other afflictive states all just tumbling around each other. But when we come on retreat and we stop turning the kaleidoscope, the mind becomes more still. And that tranquility reveals what's going on much more clearly. And then the suffering of the hindrances becomes much more obvious. And we just naturally want to let them go in favor of tranquility. So to get a sense of that process, I'd like to bring in a visual metaphor now. And it's a painting by the U.S. artist Jackson Pollock. Some of you may know of him. He was an abstract expressionist painter and he did all of those drip paintings in the 1950s. So so not all of you might know his work. So I've got a picture here. It might be a bit dark, but can you see that? You get a general sense of it. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure even which way up it goes. It doesn't really matter. But you get the gist. Yes? Is it black and white? It's black. Well, this image is black and white, but I'm going to describe it to you. This is the description of the painting from his website. It says, The surface consists of poured lines and small drops of paint on commercially dyed dark red fabric. The sequence of colors is as follows. Thin gray and white lines, a row of bold black curves, an overall intertwining of white, and finally, delicate pourings and touches of yellow, silver, scarlet, and Indian red. And this painting is officially called Silver over Black, White, Yellow, and Red. But I like to think of it as portrait of a mind experiencing a multiple hindrance attack. (laughs) (laughs) Anyone recognize it now? (laughs) So to some eyes it might look like a chaotic mess, but what if we were to deconstruct the painting in the reverse order that Jackson Pollock made it? So metaphorically, this is like clearing the mind of the hindrances. So we could start by taking out those touches of yellow and silver and scarlet and Indian red. And once some of that agitation is gone, we can see the black curves and the thin gray and white lines underneath more clearly. And then the mind gets even quieter. And so the impact of those black and gray and white marks becomes very obvious in a way that wasn't earlier when so much else was going on. And having had a taste of a little less agitation, 
we naturally want the mind to become more still. And then the visual noise of all the splatters and the splashes and the arcs and the blobs, it fades away into stillness and silence. And the mind becomes steady, gathered, unified into samadhi, which in this visual metaphor might be the blank canvas that's underneath all of that paint. Now that's perhaps a pretty imperfect metaphor and maybe for some of you it might not make so much sense. But the intention is it try to try to illustrate how as the mind becomes more tranquil it's easier to see what's getting in the way of deeper calm and steadiness. And as we clear out what's getting in the way, the mind very naturally settles into the next awakening factor, which is samadhi, translated as absorption, unification, a state of unwavering and effortless awareness. And it's usually experienced as profoundly pleasant. Now, as many of you know, this word samadhi is usually translated into English as concentration. But I, along with many other teachers, don't find that such a helpful translation. Because in English, when you hear the word concentration, what's the immediate response? For me, it's a sort of furrowed brow, focusing, even fixating attention and that tension of attention actually gets in the way of samadhi from developing. So some more accurate translations might be unification of the mind, indistractability, unwavering attention, absorption. I've even seen it translated as saturation, so the sense of the mind has been completely soaked in what it's paying attention to. So the attention doesn't move, it becomes completely steady. And we've been emphasizing samadhi all through this retreat. So even right now, let's do that same exercise and see if there's any degree of samadhi present now. So maybe on the surface level of your mind, there's some movement as you perhaps pay attention to the words and respond to the meaning. But if you drop down just below that, maybe there's some degree of steadiness and gatheredness. So again, if zero is the mind without any samadhi at all, completely scattered and agitated, and ten is the most gathered and stable the mind has ever been, just for a moment, how is the samadhi right now? Now, whether or not you've touched into the deepest states of samadhi here on this retreat, every one of us has experienced moments, at times many moments, or phases of the mind becoming more settled. And what a relief that is. In daily life, we're constantly bombarded by sense contacts, stimulated by sights and sounds and tastes and smells and physical sensations and mental activity, all of this impinging on us thousands of times a second. 
And we don't even recognize the impact of it all until we have some experience of its absence. So when the mind becomes settled and absorbed and unified into just one experience, that awakening factor of samadhi gives our whole nervous system a rest, a rest that's deeply satisfying, nourishing, and occasionally blissful. So right there is one of the potential challenges of developing samadhi because it can be experienced as so pleasant. It can be easy to get attached to it and have it become an end in and of itself. But actually it's a dead end. If we get diverted in just chasing after pleasant experiences, it doesn't lead anywhere. So we need to keep remembering that the purpose of samadhi is not just to bliss out, but to use that stability of mind to deepen wisdom. So this is how the Canadian monk Ajahn Tiradamo, who's in the Thai forest tradition, describes it. He says, The main quality of samadhi is a very focused stability of mind, which also manifests as an energy and strength comparable to focusing a spotlight. When the mind is focused upon a single object, the subjective experience is one of exceptional mental calm, quiet, and ultimately silence. The usual internal dialogue of interpreting, analyzing, discussing, etc. is reduced and eventually ceases. The mind can seem extraordinarily clear and lucid, because it's focused on one particular object. And this is incredibly helpful for increasing the depth of our awareness. So I'd like to emphasize what Ajahn Tiradamo says about how the usual self-referencing dialogue gets reduced and eventually ceases. And what a relief that is, because deep calm and clarity come up instead. So as I've been exploring the sequence of these seven factors, I've been appreciating that connection between tranquility and samadhi, how samadhi emerges naturally from tranquility, from ease and calm, and not from forceful effort as we so often tend to approach it. For most of us, this process of developing involves clearing out what gets in the way of calm, And specifically, that's the hindrance of restlessness and worry, or worry and flurry, as it's sometimes known. And I say for most of us, because unfortunately, restlessness and worry seems to be the dominant characteristic for many people's lives today. Thanks to technology and the ever-increasing fast pace of life, and all the societal pressures that come from capitalism and other structures that push us into competitiveness and isolation and inadequacy, many of us live lives that are pretty frenzied. And so just to, I mention that to put it into perspective, that it's not our personal failing if we come on retreat and we can't instantly drop down into profound peace. For most people, it just takes time. It takes time for all of that agitation in the heart-mind 
to stop reverberating quite so intensely. So we need to have a lot of patience here because obviously trying to force ourselves to be tranquil is just going to create more tension and agitation. What we can do is not struggle with that process but settle back, make space and trust that eventually tranquility will emerge of its own accord. So remembering that image I shared earlier of the jar of muddy pond water, if we keep shaking it, it stays cloudy. But if we just leave it alone, gravity does its work and we end up with clear water. There are a few other things that we can do to support that process of settling. And in terms of what we're doing outside of here in the hall in our daily activities on retreat, slowing down and maintaining continuity of mindfulness. And these two really work together to counteract that common tendency to be rushing to the next experience and the next and the next and the next. Obviously, that rushing prevents the mind from settling. So coming back to Joseph Goldstein again, he describes or suggests that we notice the feeling of rushing, which can happen even in moving slowly, and notice what characterizes that experience. We find that we're slightly ahead of ourselves, energetically toppling forward, And rushing is a kind of energetic excitability that doesn't allow for the ease and composure of a tranquil mind. And he says, we can use the simple phrase, when walking, just walk, to remind us to settle back into the moment without efforting or striving, without wanting some state or leaning into a destination. We can just feel the simplicity of each movement, moment after moment. When walking, just walk. So on one level it's pretty obvious that it's hard to develop calm if we're just speeding around on autopilot because speediness in the body stimulates speediness in the mind and vice versa. So we try to bring some degree of stillness to the body to support the stilling of the mind. By physically slowing down and bringing that more refined level of mindfulness to everything that you're doing throughout the day, doing it just a little more slowly than you normally would will help support tranquility. Now again, we can't force that slowing down. So we just gradually, metaphorically go from 50k to 40k, maybe the next day 30k, 20k, and so on. Because as I said earlier, the slower you go, generally, the more you will know. So slowing down is one support for tranquility. Guarding the sense doors is another. And this is a traditional term where we make a conscious choice to go into more voluntary simplicity or relinquishment. So avoiding any unnecessary stimulation, letting go of some of our usual ways of seeking distraction. And this is in the service of developing and maintaining calm. 
So all of you have done this to quite some significant degree by handing in your mobile phones at the start of the retreat. And that's one way of guarding the sense doors, saving yourselves a lot of unnecessary agitation. And Di and I, we were impressed by how many of you did this because for many people these days, there's quite an addictive relationship to their devices. In fact, some teachers include electronic devices in the fifth ethical precept, which is about refraining from intoxicants. (laughs) So we might notice that intoxicating pull of the devices. And in my own life, I've been trying to do a technology-free day at least once a month. And every time I do it, I'm amazed how by the end of the day, my mind is much less agitated. Maybe you've done that yourself, but... It's like I don't even notice there's a background level of buzz until it's gone. So guarding the sense doors can include not using our devices, maintaining noble silence, abstaining from reading and writing except for brief notes about the practice. And it invites us to notice where, when and how our attention goes out, goes out looking for stimulation, entertainment, distraction so that with kindness we can bring it back in knowing that the short term hit of the distraction isn't worth the longer term loss of the calm and the steadiness so all of this voluntary simplicity in our daily activities helps to support the tranquility to arise and then in terms of our formal practice in the hall we can patiently, gently keep orienting towards calm without attachment to results. And the Buddhas reported or said that frequently giving attention to calm is the nutriment, in other words, the food for the arising and fulfilling of the tranquility factor of awakening. So one way we can keep inclining towards tranquility is mentioned in the Satavatthana Sutta. It says, One trains thus, I shall breathe in, calming the bodily formation. One trains thus, I shall breathe out, calming the bodily formation. So sometimes just dropping in the word calm can be helpful. And I played with that a little bit don't know if you remember in the start of the compassion practice this afternoon I suggested breathing in and breathing out and at the end of the out breath just dropping in the word calm as an invitation, a reminder to incline the heart and mind in that direction so if that feels useful you might play with that in your practice breathing in, breathing out Inviting ease, inviting calm. Now again, because of the societal and the individual conditioning that I mentioned earlier, we tend to bring an over-efforting attitude to our practice, and that can really get in the way of calm. So in the first few years of my own practice, I don't remember having heard any instructions about tranquility. 
but I'm guessing that I probably did. <laughs> I just didn't take them in. I ignored them because I was so caught up in my misperceptions about <coughs> right effort and assuming that real practice, serious practice, requires constant doing, pushing, striving. And even now, perhaps because tranquility is such a quiet and calm state, it can be easy to overlook it. So there's been a few times when I've been putting together a talk on the seven factors of awakening and realized I've missed one out. I've only got six factors of awakening. (laughs) And often the one I've forgotten is tranquility. Perhaps because it is so peaceful, it doesn't quite call the attention the way some of the others do. So perhaps some of you notice something similar in your own practice. Most of us are just not used to calmness that's so deep. And because not much is going on, it can almost feel like we've lost our mindfulness. So we can mistake the absence of experiences for an absence of mindfulness. But actually it's just because there's so much calm, there's less, in a way, to pay attention to. So we need to refine the mindfulness to match the refinement and the subtlety of the experiences that are still happening, just on a much quieter level. So one analogy for this might be a bit like scuba diving. Again, I haven't actually done this. I'm not sure why I keep bringing these analogies of things I haven't done. But this is how I imagine it. So in the beginning, we might be on the surface, looking at all the pretty reef fish, We're playing in the waves, we're hearing other swimmers splashing around. But then as we descend deeper into the ocean, it gets quieter and there are fewer experiences to be aware of. There aren't so many shoals of fish. There's less visual stimulation. And as we descend, we get quieter and quieter. And although we might still have some awareness of what's happening up on the surface, It doesn't hold as much interest for us anymore because the sense of seclusion and contentment is more refreshing than all of that stimulation. And as this serenity continues to deepen, it just naturally flows into the next awakening factor of samadhi. So remembering that samadhi is the mind that's gathered, absorbed, unified, sometimes spoken of as saturation, the mind that is completely filled with whatever it's paying attention to. And as I said earlier, it can be experienced as very pleasant, but we want to keep in mind that its purpose is to support transformative insight, transformative wisdom. So as the Buddha said in the Connected Discourses, for one who is concentrated, One knows and sees things as they really are. So a more contemporary analogy, the U.S. Dharma teacher Shinzen Young, he compares samadhi to a microscope, which is also an instrument for seeing clearly. He says you have to have a microscope before you can see the fine structure of the cells of your hand. And you have to develop some of this power before you can see the very significant deep structure of your own psyche, 
your own mind and body. So in other words, without the steady and focused quality of samadhi, we won't be able to see through our conditioning, the self-constructing aspect of the untrained mind that tends to keep us caught and clinging and resisting an identification. So samadhi is a powerful form of letting go that supports opening to anatta, to not-self, which I'll be talking a bit more about tomorrow night. For the rest of our time this evening, now that we've had a brief overview of these two awakening factors of tranquility and samadhi, I'd like to say a little bit more generally about some of the challenges that can come up when we do come into these more wholesome mental states. So in some of the individual meetings with some of you, I've been talking about how exploring our own minds can be a little bit like exploring terrain out there in the world. And just as on any journey, we move through all kinds of different landscapes. And part of the skill that we're learning here is how to navigate each of these different environments without losing balance. And this is the refinement of wise effort, knowing what kind of energy to bring to each stage along the way as our practice develops and deepens. So as another analogy, an analogy for this process, say there's a a beautiful mountain, we'll call it Freedom Peak, and we've heard about this mountain, and we have an idea that we'd like to go and explore it someday. Now probably a few people have heard about this mountain, and they do think they'd like to go and experience it someday, but mostly they stay safe and comfortable in their home in the suburbs. Maybe every now and then they go out and watch a movie about this mountain, or they read a lot of books about it. Maybe some of them write haiku poetry about this mountain, and some of them might go to a professional conference with keynote speakers from all over the world, all talking about Freedom Peak from a hundred different perspectives. And some people are content to stay in their metaphorical suburbs for their whole lives because it does take quite a bit of effort, courage, determination to leave the suburbs and to set off into the unknown. And that's what all of you have done here coming on this retreat. But continuing with the metaphor, as we start that walk towards Freedom Peak, at first the trail is pretty hard going. We're slogging through dense undergrowth, and so we need to learn how to hike through that without getting lost. And then we get above the tree line for a while, and now it's steep and rocky and exposed. And the skills that we've learned in navigating through the bush, they're no use here. We have to learn a whole new way of walking, how to navigate this terrain. By now, we're probably starting to feel quite tired. And then suddenly the trail brings us into a hidden valley that's secluded and sheltered and sunny. There's a small stream running through the middle of it with crystal clear, fresh water to drink. The valley floor is filled with all kinds of flowers and sweet-smelling herbs. We can put down our packs and lie in the grass. 
basking in the warm sun. And we don't need to exert ourselves much at all now. But after we've been here for an hour, or two hours, an afternoon, a day, we're not sure what to do anymore because we're just not used to this kind of terrain and we don't know how to navigate it. So in that metaphor I'm trying to illustrate how after the mind has been secluded for a while, as it has been for all of us here, the hindrances gradually weaken to some extent and sometimes they can disappear altogether. And at first this can be a little disconcerting because we've got so used to wrestling with sense desire and aversion and sloth and torpor and restlessness and worry and skeptical doubt. Yes, they're unpleasant, but at least it gives us something to do. And so when the hindrances start to be less predominant and we find ourselves in that metaphorical hidden valley, it can feel like there's nothing happening or that we've lost our mindfulness because we can't really say what we're aware of anymore. And again, this might be because those coarser mind states have fallen away, but the mindfulness isn't yet quite refined enough to notice the more subtle mind states that come up in their place, such as these seven factors of awakening. And we might start to discover that these more refined states are actually an acquired taste. And that to some extent we've been unconsciously addicted to the drama of practice, to the highs and the lows. Because those highs and lows reinforce a solid sense of me at the center of all of that drama. And we might be secretly searching for catharsis of some kind, craving intensity, maybe even a little afraid of those more balanced and nuanced range of experiences. So when the practice settles into a more stable and quiet phase, we might start trying to get some of that familiar intensity back by pushing, forcing, striving, going back into that mode of doing, doing, doing. So we need to train ourselves to recognize how it feels to have a mind without any of the hindrances. The absence of these afflictive states might not last very long, but each moment when they're gone is helping to loosen some of what are sometimes called our karmic knots. So our karmic knots are those deeply conditioned or deeply identified with stories that we spend a lot of time and energy wrestling with. And at times when these knots start to loosen, it can feel more like unraveling or even falling apart. And this is because our usual defense mechanisms, our personality habits, our self-protection strategies are getting a little bit looser. We might feel to be on shaky ground. So I've noticed in my own practice that at times there can be a kind of backlash when we touch into this new spaciousness. And one symptom of this is the habit mind going into overdrive and it starts telling itself all kinds of ridiculous stories or it gets lost in full-blown fantasies and creates imaginary doomsday scenarios, anything at all to sabotage this new, more open way of being.
So it can feel like there are big pendulum swings in this phase of the practice that can be quite uncomfortable at times. And so what we can do here is to try to offer ourselves patience, kindness, self-compassion, and as best we can to trust that this too is part of the natural unfolding of the practice. So as I've mentioned to quite a few of you, some years ago I found out that in the Tibetan tradition, the word that's used to mean meditation literally means something like getting used to it. And I found that really helpful. If we think of meditation as getting used to it, that can be interpreted in many different ways. But when we are in new territory of some kind, then meditation is simply a way of getting used to it, kindly, patiently acclimatizing ourselves to this new and unfamiliar terrain of the mind, so that eventually we're able to stay in the terrain of all seven awakening factors for longer and longer, and they can come into balance so that those profoundly transformative insights can arise of their own accord. So coming back to where I started this talk, the purpose of these insights is to develop the wisdom, the understanding that informs how we live the rest of our lives outside of formal meditation retreats. And in this process, the heart is just as profoundly transformed. And the two wings to awakening of wisdom and compassion come together to help us to live our lives in ways that bring benefit not only to we ourselves, but everyone we come into contact with. So may our efforts here on this retreat help us to experience these awakening factors more and more fully for the benefit of all beings everywhere. Thank you for your attention. Let's just have a a moment of silence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.